0: Hi Red Hand listeners, I want to tell you about a health and fitness journey I'm starting and I thought you might want to join me. For various reasons including injury, becoming a new parent, being super sort of busy with work, podcasting, writing and a load of other stuff, I've neglected my health and fitness and put on a few pounds. I reached out to an online personal trainer called Nick Jason he made a deal with me that he would helped me as long as I documented my health and fitness journey over the next few months, making wee videos like this. He's given me a full breakdown of what I need to do in terms of the gym, nutrition, and other stuff. I just need to stick to it. I'm documenting it all here because I'm sure there are people out there who can relate and it also helps keep me accountable to my goals. So follow along and see what happens over the next few months. And if you want to start on your own journey, feel free to reach out to Nick, he's been great. I'm only at the start of this process now, but I'll be documenting what I get up to every week, so stay tuned. Welcome to the Red Hand Podcast, the most listened to Ulster Rugby podcast. The Red Hand is independent, made by fans, for fans. Next level Ulster Rugby content featuring unrivaled insight, unfiltered opinion, powerful stories and accessible analysis. If you're a business who would like to advertise to thousands of rugby fans across the province and beyond please get in touch via Instagram at theredhand.co or email peter at theredhand.co. Don't forget to follow us on socials and join in the discussion. If you enjoy the podcast and would like to support us, please sign up to The Red Hand on Patreon. Also, please like and subscribe to the podcast. Leave us a rating and tell your friends. Put the link to the podcast in some of your group chats. Thanks for your support and we hope you enjoy listening to this episode. This is a bit of a surreal moment for me, the opportunity to talk to a childhood hero. So to a generation of Ulster fans, David Humphreys had a semi-mythical status. To make David feel old, the first series of games I remember watching was, unsurprisingly, the 99 Squad, who made history becoming the first Irish province to win the European Cup. So despite that long intro, my next guest needs no introduction, so I'm here with David
1: Humphreys. So David, how are you? very well. Nice to be here. I'm not sure that um, you needed to make me feel any older than I feel myself, but uh, yeah, I'm delighted to be sitting down and have a chat to you.
0: It's an absolute honour to have you on. Catch us up with where, where you're at now, what you're doing, and I've seen across different platforms you've gotten this really interesting new business up and running, so tell us a bit more about that.
1: Yeah, it's been a very interesting couple of years since I stepped away from professional rugby, it was something that. Um, I'd been thinking about for a while. It just felt like the right time. And one of the things in, in what I'd been doing for the last 15 years in both Ulster and in Gloucester was a huge focus was on recruitment, both players and staff. And one of my big frustrations was um, when you tried to recruit staff, it was a quite a long process. It was a difficult process. One of the things that I'd say is that, um, in both those roles, so many times the questions from people, whether at your stage where they started leaving university, or how do I get involved in sport? How do I get a job in sport? Where do I find a job in sport? And there's no easy answer to that. So what we've tried to set out, we've set up a company called Sportswork. It's got a foot in sports technology, a foot in recruitment, um, and obviously a very strong sporting spine to it. And what we're trying to do is create a, not a cliche, but it's a one-stop shop for people who are working in sport and want to look for opportunities beyond that but also for people who aspire to work in sport and we think um, a lot of the you've seen a lot of the um, correspondence yourself of the um, articles um, just around people reviewing where they're at and this opportunity to get into sport and um, so it's been a very exciting but it's very 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 different. From what I've been used to, and learning how a business to set up a business from scratch has been, yeah, it been fascinating.
0: Yeah, it's interesting, and like most really good ideas, I sort of saw it and I thought, how has no one else thought of that? Because that seems like such a niche or another or a gap oh, in the niche. market, yeah. and, and certainly something which would be really helpful for people who who want to get in, involved in working in sports. So, yeah, an exciting time for you now. You. you You've always been involved in rugby, you've always been involved in sport, and I want to sort of start at the beginning. So you're a very sporty family, and we know about your, your brother, but your sister as well, is that right? Is she, she quite into her sport as well?
1: Yeah, it really comes, I suppose, from my my parents, both yeah. were very interested in sport. My dad played a lot of rugby, my mum played a lot of hockey, she was a PE teacher. Yeah. So really, from as early as I can remember, as a child, we were involved pretty much with a with ball. Anything at all, we would have had, had a go at it. And that was the same. I have two brothers and two sisters and all five of us um, played a lot of sport at school, played a lot of uh, sport through our universities as well. And, um, you know, I, I, as part of that, my brother and I both played professional sport. My sister, while she didn't play professional sport because hockey is very, my sister Karen, hockey is a very amateur, still yeah. still an amateur game. Her commitment we used to laugh when we used to put our I mean, she might have been playing for Ireland hockey one weekend, we were playing international rugby, we were staying in the five-star Barclay Hotel at the time. She was sleeping on the floor of one of her teammates in a university halls of residence. And that's the difference that we, you know, we used to laugh about. But the commitment that they all had to show was was, was just the same level as we were, but just didn't have the benefits that came with it. So, you know, sports always been a central part of, of my life from very young and we all played when we went on holiday. It was always, you know, nice yeah. to hold, tennis, cricket, golf. Yeah, whatever.
0: yeah. So it, it helped obviously having a whole family who were in the sport. And I suppose growing up, like how much of that came naturally for you. Obviously, you're a very talented player. Did that result from sort of uh, even when you're at school, so uh, going through Ballamida Academy, was it? Easy for you, or was it something that you worked a lot at? So did you go home and practice? Was it even mm-hmm. something you thought about? Was it just you and your siblings out playing Do you know outside not thinking
1: of it as training? It's a fascinating question because it's something that in the modern world and the modern world of pathways and how you bring talent through, we can sit and chat almost and have a single conversation around that. So from my own experience I grew up, my dream was to be a footballer. So, in effect, I'm a field football player. Canada um, Bleach as I was growing up, was my idol and I just wanted to wear the number seven shirt at Liverpool. But part of the... In, in Northern Ireland, I went to Grammar School. I went to Baldwin academy. And um, when you go there, at that time, they didn't play football. So your only choice, really, for games at that stage was you play rugby or you play cross-country. I don't know whether you've ever seen the cross-country course, at Academy, but at the end, and something like that you, you really look forward to. So I, really that was the first, my first ever experience of um, of rugby. was my first games day at, at the Academy. But really, I, you, you asked, was I very, very committed? Not at all, my view was, and, and probably still is, that you want, when you're growing up, to experience as many sports as you can. You know, we used to talk, especially in Gloucester, we would have had some 16-year-olds or whatever, I can't remember exactly, about 14 to 16-year-old. We would have had 300 children in the room who were on our pathway. And the, the point of that was, don't put everything, all your eggs into one basket. Only three out of the 300 might make it. I think there's a percentage of premiership football. It's 0.5% of people who go through a premiership academy actually become premiership footballers. So my big fear is that there's a generation of people, of young people coming through who have this aspiration to play professional sport and when they don't make it they give up sport. Sport should be part of your life. Sport is a lifestyle. It's, it's so many benefits. So for me it was very much about Balmain Academy. I played rugby, cricket, tennis, badminton, table tennis, anything. I wasn't at school for the <laughs> academic side of it. I promise you that. I was very much at school of the the, the fun and the the the, yeah, the excitement of playing sport at the end of every day and then as you said going home my, my, my dad would have spent a lot of time in the back garden when I was young especially trying to learn rugby just passing balls back and forth and then as my brothers and sisters grew up that was just that, that was part of our life really so it's yeah. um, in some ways it's very boring but sport has always been Central part of what we've what we've been
0: about. Yeah, it's it's really interesting. We, as you say, we could explore that all day. Mm-hmm. There's that. Um, there's a very good book, Bounce, by yeah. Matthew Syed, and there's another one. It's well, he talks a lot about the ten thousand hours of practice and how you get that. And yeah. some people sort of reach it in the back garden. It's actually John Cooney who was speaking to a while ago. Uh, talked about hitting a ball against a wall. He lived yeah. in sort of a housing estate. He would just repeatedly do that, and it's fascinating to know. We're to see how guys like yourself develop that hand-eye coordination through different sports as well, and I'm sure
1: that, that'll... that I mean, the, the bottom line is that while there's so many theories out there, there is no one rule that can define everybody who starts wherever they start and ends wherever they end. So for me, it's about the circumstances. There's a lot of luck involved, and there's a lot of luck with the school you go to, the coaches you have who, who shape and frame how you approach sport and then the opportunities depending on where you live and so look it's um to me the biggest thing um, especially as we come out of COVID now is just making sure that we give children from a very young age the opportunity to get back to giving them the opportunities to find the sport that they love but also to play the multi-sport aspect which allows you to be much more adaptable it teaches you lots of different skills and um, I don't know I mean I as I said, we, we could we could go off on a complete tangent and talk about it. <laughs> I, I believe very strongly that it, it's something that we have to be very so in rugby as well. A very clear plan as to how we make sure that the generation or the children that have missed out because of COVID, yeah. we don't lose yeah them to the game know, in that, the long term.
0: That's an interesting interesting point in terms of for kids coming up coming up now. That's two years. Do you know that's just. For people yeah. at a formative time in their For lives sure. that's a significant period of time I suppose uh, there'd be a lot of parents who have kids who play mini rugby or football or whatever uh, listening to this and going a wee bit back to sort of talking about families and sport it's it's always sort of it's a really interesting topic you look at sort of sporting dynasties that's mm. that within families and, and how that, that all works now you've uh, James coming through the system at Ulster yeah. which I'm sure you're very proud you know uh, He's following in your footsteps, but in terms of uh, and the other guy I was speaking to last week was Harry Sheridan, who would be um, a, a sort of teammate in yeah. the academy. With James, he was talking about his dad sort of coaching him right through and how helpful that was. And he said like his dad was very into rugby, but he, he enjoyed that, you know, and it was made very fun for him, and that's yeah. why he kept going back. What's your advice to parents out there who want to create the next the next big sort of ultra rugby star or whatever sport it may be? Where's the balance between sort of making them fulfil their potential but not applying maybe too much pressure?
1: You promised me that this would be a nice, <laughs> nice, easy conversation. Look, it's it's parents do have such an enormous impact on every aspect of a child's life, and probably one of my frustrations over the years has been that yes you want as a parent you want to give them an opportunity but once you give them that opportunity you've got to step back just let them find their feet they will enjoy some sports they'll not enjoy some sports and it goes back to what I said earlier my fear is that sometimes children are pushed in a certain direction and when they get to a point where they decide or it becomes their choice they don't they give up Mm. so for me that a big job as a parent was to give you you give your children own love for for this a sport yeah. or for sport get them that they see it as a big part of their life and that's what we've tried to do. Jane and myself have been very encouraging, but probably the biggest thing is supportive because yeah. sport. You know that that's that, that's the beauty of sport. I don't necessarily agree with lots of these competitions where children go and play boys and girls and you can't win and you can't lose. Yeah. That's not life. Life is about going. You you, you want to give them the love. Of playing sport and all the benefits that come with that but you also want to give people a love of competition mm-hmm. you, you want to go out and compete you want whether you're playing tiddlywinks whether you're playing golf there has to be an element of competition because that in my opinion is what drives people it's what inspires people and if you can get that balance right again we all get it right and we all get it wrong at different stages but for me it's about just encouraging them as I said giving them a love for sport and then let them play.
0: Yeah, no, that's uh, that's interesting. And I think that's a recurring theme that people have to love it. You know, you see certain athletes and they maybe reflect later on, they go, like, I don't even enjoy playing rugby or playing football, whatever it might be. Yeah. And it was a misery. So I'd say that's really good advice to any parents out there. Like, you don't need to pressure, kids. It's, it's about instilling a love of competition. Yeah,
1: you said the word there, but pressure. Yeah. You know, there's so much pressure in every aspect of the life. That, that that they do now with social media, the that, that pressure that, that brings, the exam pressure, the, the, just the expectation, and that's why for me, from a very early age, sport has got, got to be something yeah. that's different. Than that you love it. You know, there's days you and I have both walked off pitches and you've gone, why do I do that? You know that feeling of yeah. you know frustration after a game, but then it's that ability to flick a switch. Next week you're ready to go again. The next day in professional sport. You know, you play on a Friday, you play on a Saturday, you lose the game. The ones that are successful, the ones that have that ability to flick a switch, that when they turn up on Monday morning, and I include the coaches in this, of the ability to turn up on a Monday morning, no matter what happened the week before, with five, six, seven days to get ourselves ready for the next challenge. And then bringing that enthusiasm and being able to, you know, make sure that when the whistle goes on the Saturday or the Friday, the next week, That you're ready to go again yeah and
0: so we're talking about sort of playing for the love of the sport and uh, sort of brings me back to that journey and the this part of the timeline the journey to professionalism now whenever you're playing as a youngster you're coming up uh through Balmain academy Mm. playing our irish schools playing under 21s you wouldn't have anticipated this as a career you're playing for the love of the game (laughs) what motivated you whenever you were playing those games was it the camaraderie and the team because I I suppose now there's a financial incentive Mm. for players they come through and I suppose the the end goal maybe is to secure a a big contract whatever you're just playing for fun what was it that motivated you during that time before you could have anticipated rugby turning
1: professional it probably ties in a little bit to what we said in that I didn't need a motivation because I love playing I hated training Honestly, it's funny all the way through. I could, have, I would love, I love playing three times a week, but I hated, I just hated the training aspect to it. But to, to answer your question, so really, I consider myself incredibly fortunate to have had four, five years of university rugby. So I played in the amateur game when you worked all day, like you had to train as a solicitor and um, worked in tunes in Belfast all day. Could not wait to get in the car to go training at Bellarmine at the time. Could not wait to get before that when universities, um, during, when you're studying, just the release of being able to go and train with Queens on a Monday, Wednesday, Thursday. You know that 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 was because you looked forward to just something different. And then really, completely out of the blue in 1995, I was across university in England, and in the middle of that year, um, the game went professional, but even if you and I had been having a conversation then I didn't necessarily see myself becoming a professional rugby player because I qualified as a sinister, I was very much that was the career path that I was on and it was really we played in a varsity match in December 20, oh sorry uh, 1995, I wish it was 20, 1995 and then um, after that Clive Woodward who was the London Irish coach at the time he came up and um, to Oxford, to, took a lot of the, the, the players who played out to, for, for dinner and talked about the game-going professional and talked about the opportunities that were, were there. Um, and that's why I went and play in London Irish.
0: Yeah, that's really interesting. I, it, having um, talked to various people, and most, uh, I'm trying to think most recently, it was Justin Fitzpatrick. Yeah. Yeah. Um, we talked about coaches, what makes a good coach. You talked there about Clive Woodward, who, I suppose, would we'll go down history. Do you know a historic England World Cup win, 2003? One of the best mm-hmm. teams ever assembled, great coach. Tell me a bit more about what makes a good coach, in your opinion, and some of the best coaches that you've worked with. So I'm sure we could rattle off a number of them that you work with. Harry Williams is, mm-hmm. is, is one. Clive Woodward is another. Who's, the, who's sort of the best sort of coach you've worked with? What makes a good coach?
1: Coaches don't necessarily like when you say, but a good coach is often about good players. So, and that's a very, you know, it's a throwaway comment in many ways. But I do think that I've been very fortunate to work, as you said, with 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 Clive, with with a complete contrast, Dick Best at London Irish, and um, with Harry Williams at at Ulster, with Brian McLaughlin with Matt Williams, Eddie O'Sullivan, Warren Gatlin. So, and I don't I don't think there's any one thing. I think the secret to being a good coach is obviously you've got to know the game. It doesn't matter what sport you're in. To be a good coach, you've got to know the game. And then it, it's always this debate about where does technical knowledge and technical ability overlap with the personality of the coach and his ability to get the best out of the players and I'm very much in the view that it's to that extreme, that latter point where the great coaches have the ability to connect with their players Mm -hmm. the ability to inspire them and that's what Clive did in those days in 95, 96 97, yeah around that 96, 97 season his ability to come in and as a group of young Irish players Irish rugby when you there's probably a little bit of a mental block about being competitive against those teams, and Clyde's mindset rubbed off on a lot of players who would then go on to play international rugby for Ireland. But at the time it was his enthusiasm for the game, his passion for well, his passion for everything at that stage. Um, and every weekend when you went out and played, you felt you were you know, a top, top player and you were able to, to compete. You know, he changed in his coaching as he moved into England and international and in the World Cup he became much more of a hands-off coach and, and organising everything around him and that was just part of the journey that he was on but he, he was very good and you know for me as I said um, those coaches that I've worked with as a player um, you have range from the experience of Harry Williams to, to Mark McCall who just finished the game and was an outstanding coach yeah. but at the time made a very very good decision to move on from Ulster Rugby and you know you've seen the success that he he's had and um, to be arguably the most successful coach in England in the last decade so as I said to to try and answer your question in a a long winded way there's no one definition of what makes a very good coach it's all about a a little bit of luck timing with a very good squad and then that ability to get the very best out of the squad that you have
0: yeah yeah no it's it's interesting because you get different answers and very often it's up as you say it's the ability to adapt and and um, Deal with the group of players that you have. You can't impose your uh, philosophy, I suppose, on a, a an entirely different group of players of a different team, for example. So, um, I want to want to talk just off the back of that about your return to Ulster. So, um, you, you said about your your time playing in in with London Irish yeah. and. And the decision then to come back, and I suppose it was sort of uh, the perfect storm, you know everyone came to- together, a lot of guys came back and it formed this amazing squad at Ulster that went on to this very sort of a historic feat for Ulster winning being the first Irish province to win the European Cup. Tell me a bit more about that decision to come back and what made that squad special.
1: So when you look back with hindsight it was a very clever move on behalf of the RFU to try and bring a lot of the players who were playing professionally in England back to, back to Ireland. Ireland were a couple of years behind going fully professional compared to where the English teams were. I think the first year that I was at London Irish I actually came back and played in Europe for Ulster so there was that still kind of um, transition period. For why did we come home? I think it was very much a case for the my personal reasons when I was getting married um, we thought we would have been living in London probably for a few years playing rugby and then working there but the opportunity combined with the group of players we all knew each other pretty well and there was a lot of discussions around okay well if one of us is going to go back are we all going to go back or how many of us are going to go back are we going to go back to a competitive setup? Um, so really there was just a number of discussions at that level and um. You know, again with hindsight we all made a, a good decision to come back based on the fact that we were then part of that nineteen ninety-nine team. It was that there were a lot of things that went in our favour, a lot of luck. Um, but in many ways, you look back now and without doubt, you talk to people who at the time the European Cup was in its infancy as well. If it had been French teams that year, they they probably wouldn't have had the attraction that people saw in the English club. So when they looked at the final of Lansdowne Road, fifty thousand people, you know, it was that idea of, I don't want to be part of that. You know, the fear of missing out on on what would be another on a great competition going forward, and you know that was a, certainly a big trigger for the European Cup. But also, when you think that we had crowds of a few thousand people at the start of that season, and by the time we won, and then the way that um, Friday nights mm. became a bit of a tradition yeah. in Ulster. If, for rugby supporters to come along to Ravenhill and just you know be part of some great nights not a huge amount of success after 99 but just be part of some great nights and be part of a we'll be we, we a fantastic time and yeah. um, you know yes of course 1999 and the success in the European Cup semi-quarter final semi-final and final will always be a highlight I would guess for anybody involved in those games but um We've been able to take a bigger picture view of it now. It, it had a much bigger impact than just that uh, three-week period or whatever block of games.
0: It, it certainly did. And I said to you before we probably started recording here that I sort of remember vaguely when it, before that time I sort of would have been going to games for about the age of five. with mm-hmm. dad, when you, as you say, it's a completely different setup now. It was sort of there is uh, just wouldn't have been as many fans there. And this squad and the difference that it made the Ulster rugby and the trajectory that Ulster rugby were then on and went on to um, uh, to more success in in that o five o six season. So yeah, I just remember that. I remember the semi final and being down at the final as well. And you know, as a as sort of a, a, a young kid, I thought the good times would never end. <laughs> <laughs> it's the
1: beauty, honestly, awesome, honestly, awesome, it's the beauty of playing sport in this part of the world and. and in, in, in Ireland in, in Northern Ireland when teams are successful whether that was the Northern Ireland football team the Irish football team um, the Ulster rugby team the, the, the Gaelic football team yeah. people get behind it and that, that, yeah. that's what it, for, for me that was what more than anything else I remember it was that that feeling that when you're out and about everybody just wanted you to be successful everybody wanted to be feel that like they were part of that success and um, yeah, the, the the, the games itself, I don't remember very much about any of the games, but I just remember that whole feel-good factor in, in, in Ulster that came along a number of times and uh, has been since with other teams that were successful. Yeah. Look, That's why you we all who come from this part of the world take a huge amount of pride in the success that teams have and individuals have.
0: Absolutely. So... I was going to ask you a bit more about specific details about those games, but it sounds mm-hmm. like they were almost a blur of you're on this trajectory towards the final. Certainly, from my perspective, as a kid, I was like, right, we're going to win.
1: Mm-hmm. And part of
0: that was Humphreys is playing at 10. We had Simon Mason as well. That was my view as you was a kid and it almost seemed inevitable, particularly that opening victory lap around, uh, <laughs> around the stadium. Tell me a bit more. Do you remember that the semi-final moment, the famous try? Is that all a blur? What's it like looking back in those types of moments?
1: Those are the moments when you get old, you sit back and think, gosh, I'm glad I was part of those. Yeah. Um, I, I don't remember much about the games, to be honest. I remember silly things. I remember the Ebba away game where we won easily. I remember the the um, Edinburgh game that year because that was the first time that I've been captain In the Edinburgh game we were two or three scores down um really early in the game 20 points down I think and we managed to come back and get a draw and there were so many things that happened during that season that were just just lucky really you know uh, Craig Chalmers missing a kick over Edinburgh in the final pool game and then being part of the the quarter final will always be remembered for Andy Ward rushing off, you know, as much as he didn't need to. He enjoyed the headlines from that. I actually fractured or dislocated my shoulder in that game, which is why I didn't think that I'd be fit. Um, But so that's my memory. It was the getting hurt in that game, making a tackle, one of the very few. Um, Then the semi-final year, right? It was um that was the game that I suppose for me defined the whole campaign because probably didn't expect to win Stade said at that stage we the best team in Europe they full of superstars top top quality international players and we played some really good rugby on a beautiful day in, um, in Belfast when we got to the final you know you, you, anybody who's ever put themselves through the 80 minutes of watching it again it was a dreadful game apart from Simon's kicking and the atmosphere you know and, yeah. and the, 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 you said it yourself that when we did the lap of honour and not the lap of honour, but the lap around the pitch, we stood before the east stand just before kickoff and just acknowledged the support that we'd had. And the fact that for me, still is what that day was about, you know, not yeah. the game itself. And you know, we were just very, as I said, I keep using the word luck because luck does play a big part. And um, we were just lucky to be in the right place yeah. at the right time and be part of a team of, of brilliant characters who we still meet up with occasionally, once in a while. And um, yeah, we all, all should be you know, just that bond of being part of that one team. Yeah. And, um, no matter what else we go on to achieve, in my view, we would never have bettered that particular period, of, well, I think it was December, January 1999, that eight-week period in, in, in rugby.
0: Yeah, I know it was, it, it really, as you say, Northern Ireland's a small enough place that whenever uh, Ulster say, or Northern Ireland, whatever, they, they accomplish something like yeah. that it lifts the entire country yeah, for sure. effort there's a buzz around the place and um to be part of that is it must have been amazing so one of the things i'm going to ask you about is that you're someone who handles pressure very well on the pitch you sort of cemented that reputation for like last ditch hero- heroics kicks um when they really matter tell me a bit more about dealing with pressure Another comparison I was going to make was Cooney really reads a lot, reads a lot of books, very into mindfulness, meditation, Mm -hmm. trying to be present in the moment, has a routine. How much of that is just innate for you, was just inbuilt, sort of this confidence and ability to handle pressure. How did you do that? Because if you could bottle that, or if you could teach it, you'd make a fortune.
1: Yeah, and there was very little psychology or mindfulness in those days at all. It was more, I mean, my first experience really of of, uh, psychology would have been um, talking to somebody about routine and visualisation, all the things that you probably at that stage did reasonably naturally. But I remember talking to a psychologist and we were talking about kicking and kicking at international level or big games. And the psychologist was saying, well, look, what you want to do is block it all out and pretend... That you're just standing in the practice ground, whether it was at Queens or I mean in London Irish, wherever it was. And I said, hold on, I think you cut that the wrong way around. The reason that I stand in those places is because when I'm there, I'm visualising standing in front of 50,000 people on Lansdowne Road. That's why I practice, that's why I stand out there, that's why, you know, whether it's a, any sport, golfers, but goal kickers in rugby, you stand for hours practising because those are the moments that you're practising for, you're not. So that that so my initial, um, interaction with psychology probably was it. I don't mean, think that you know that, that's wrong. I want I want the pressure of standing over a kick. I want the pressure of feeling that you've got a chance to win a game or certainly help your team win a game. So I like I've always enjoyed that. I didn't necessarily enjoy missing, but that's just again that's that nature of sport and. It's what goes back a little bit to that competitive discussion we had a little bit earlier, where I'm saying that it's those moments when you're at your lowest and you know you've you've dealt with pressure and hasn't you haven't been successful, but you also know then a week or two later you get an opportunity to, to do it again, and you get an opportunity to do it differently, and you get an opportunity then to to build that. You know, the word the, the the modern word is resilience, but it's just to me it's experience. It's learning to deal with the ups and downs the same way. Trying not to be too carried away in the good days, but to enjoy them and equally not to be too down in the bad days, but know that that's part of just the, the again another cliche journey of sport, but that's what you know, you talk about James coming through playing rugby. He's already had lots of ups and downs in his career. But that, that that's that's what helps you prepare the next stage of your career that's part of that experience of journey but it's also about building you know building people men boys girls men women who have the ability not just in the sporting field but then when they step away from it to know that you know yeah good times come bad times come but life goes on
0: yeah that's so interesting to hear you say that um you actually thrive under pressure <laughs> Counterintuitive, almost. Whenever you think psychologists are saying, like, imagine you're on the training pitch, <laughs> yeah. but you want those people watching because that's the whole point. You're you're kicking because you're playing for Ulster, yeah. you're playing for Ireland, and you're obviously going to <laughs> you're not going to want to miss those. Okay. Um, that's so interesting. You,
1: you just want to get you just, just want to be there. You just want to yeah. experience it. And um, you know, there's some people who experience it and don't enjoy it. Yeah. Um, and I, I've always been fascinated listening to Johnny Wilkinson. Mm. You know when I played against him, he was he was the best. You know everybody was just in awe of his ability, his not just his kicking ability, but then you listen to him now and the demons that he fought with throughout his career, and probably never enjoyed it. Yeah, like I I was never ever close to his level. Yeah, but I certainly feel that I enjoyed the majority of of, of my career. Of course, I would love to go back and do do a couple of things, have a couple of kicks, or, um. But on the whole, I look back on my with a huge amount of pride, not even a huge amount of pride, very, very appreciative and grateful that I have an opportunity to play sport for as long as I did, and also at the level that I did.
0: Yeah. And so that's, I suppose for any sort of aspiring rugby players or athletes, that lesson of not getting too carried away whenever you've done well, and equally not getting too down in the dumps, maintaining that steady sort of uh, level-headedness throughout is is absolutely key. And um, I want to... You played for also, I think it was 10 years basically from 98 right through to 2008, so you must have encountered some characters. Tell me a, a bit about sort of who were you friendly with, or perhaps more kind interestingly, who are the big characters that you really remember? Who are the memorable guys?
1: Well, it's very different. Um, so I, I think I made my debut for Ulster in 92, so I played 92 to 96, very much in the amateur mm-hmm. days, and there were some you know in, enormous characters who who played through that phase, characters in, in a good way and in a, <laughs> <laughs> in a bad way. That you, you... And that's the beauty of playing in a team sport. When you're playing in a squad of, well, you know nowadays the squads are 40 50 people. So it's, it, it is very different. In 20 years ago, your squads were 20, 25 people. So you got to know them much more um, closely than, than, than you probably do now. And that's, that's the difficulty that sport is facing because of social media, because of the commercial um, pressures, we are always putting our players to, conform, are requiring our players to conform to certain ideas. And that means that now that the supporters don't always see the true characters and the true yeah. true sense. And that's why now you know, see someone like uh, you know, Joe Marler, yeah. you know, Cal Sinclair, <laughs> Ellis Genge. They're, you're starting to see now, it's almost turning full circle. And you're starting to see people who are willing to be different, willing to voice an opinion. And the challenge then is how, how, how in a professional setup, you manage them on a, on a whole different level.
0: Yeah, that's so interesting. So there, there are obviously still characters in the game and you sort of hear like, like sort of the legends of, of yesteryear, like Sunil Best and mm-hmm. people, there's loads of stories about him, various people who were teammates of his, Justin Harris, who yeah. <laughs> people always refer back to as well big characters and now it's maybe a bit more sanitised it's a, it's all Definitely. a bit more corporate commercial and you have to watch what you say and part of the reason for these podcasts is supposed to get the new people and yeah. current players and also to hear from ex-players about what it was actually like and um, one one of the things I really enjoyed recently was the documentary about the number 10 jersey for Ireland Okay, um, and loads of characters and that I learnt a lot watching it because a lot of it I suppose the build up there's a really fascinating bit about you and Raul The build-up to that was fascinating as well because a lot of it was before my time. Yeah. A lot of these huge names I'd never heard of, and there's actually not much footage of it mm-hmm. often playing. So I love watching rugby. You know, before, I did too. Yeah. <laughs> before it was just big guys running into each other. It was a lot of offload and a lot of skills and.
1: So much. It's a different game. There was so much space then, and then. Yeah. I used to say if you beat somebody one on one. 20-25 years ago you were in a lot of space yeah if you beat somebody now there's about 3 or 4 <laughs> games that smashes over that's a different game <laughs>
0: that's, that's another question and that's actually a listener question which I'll ask now because it seems the appropriate time is how has it changed being a 10 from when you were playing to, to today or maybe how has rugby changed since you were playing on today
1: it changes you can see it um the product is all about make is entertainment. So that's why the game is continually being tweaked. The, the laws are being tweaked. Um but how's it changed? Well, again, you'll appreciate it. So when uh, when I was number ten at Queen, it was almost a badge of honour yeah. to be able to come off the pitch without having been tackled or having made a tackle. <laughs> you know, you came off perfectly clean. And that was kind of the mindset that you played as number ten. You went yeah. out and tried to score a few tries and create a few tries, but the other side of the game that was that was the back row's job and the centre's job. My job was to make things happen and to kick, kick a few goals. Yeah. Whereas now the game is just it's it's brutal. You know the game yeah. the game has become a not not quite a game of chess, but it, it is very much about teams that can you but you in the old day, in the amateur game in the early stages of professionalism, you didn't try and build a team necessarily. It was who was available and then you just you built the game plan around them. Now you're seeing teams that are are very well planned. Players picked to complement each other. Players picked that you know they add a value. He, he's very good at the breakdown. He can slow ball down. He's a very good set play. So there's a there's a huge amount more goes into planning what your squad looks like. And again, like it's almost impossible when you when you watch games from the from the amateur where there's no lifting in the line outs where it's a mayhem and there's 16 people in rucks and they're flying in the rucks now there'll be you know three or four red cards at almost every yeah, breakdown yeah. so the game has changed but it's been forced to change because as as it's become more more popular as a spectator sport and it's been more and more on TV because you're competing against some other very very good sports and sports that are great to watch the game just has to continue to evolve and that's that's going to be the case you know, if you and I were talking about it in another 10 years, there will be lots of other changes that have happened that make it different and not, not quite unrecognisable because the game is still, you know, the, 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 the very simple scoring point numbers have, hasn't changed and won't ever change. But it's about just trying to continually adapt the game to make it a better product.
0: That's interesting. And it probably skips ahead a wee bit um, to what I was going to ask you later on about, like, what are those changes? There's that sort of chat of 12s. Do you know, yeah. and, and and I suppose naturally that opens up more space for people to run into. Is that where the game's headed? Is it is it sort of tackles blue the waist to allow people to offload? What what do we need to do? Because I think I watch rugby now, and I'm like, yes, I enjoy it because of growing up watching it. But it's such a niche sport to yeah. attract new audiences. That's really it's a hard sell because a lot of the time players don't know what they've done to infringe in a rocket, let alone yeah. <laughs> the spectators at home. So. <laughs> How, how, how do, do, do we do we simplify it or do we just I suppose continue with we have a great game do we just stick with it what, what do you think
1: You're, I mean you, you mentioned 12s there and I was involved in the, the world 12s for a short period as a consultant very much because when we were in Gloucester and watching the IPL we often came in after training over lunch and there was an IPL game on and the discussion was, can rugby ever do something like like that, or how does rugby, because it's a very short window, players get paid a huge amount of money, because it's a great product to watch. So this 12s was was something, a step in that direction. I I do believe there is an opportunity in the game for something a little bit different. Mm -hmm. It's not 7s, because 7s is a completely different spectacle, Mm -hmm. and players who play 7s, it's quite a hard transition to play 15s, whereas 12s to 15s, is not difficult. The same players who play 15s would play 12s, but it was a short window of, of higher, faster, more tries, more space, and an opportunity for players to earn not certainly nowhere near IPL numbers, but in the same way that cricketers earn a lot of money from the 100 because it's shorter and it allows people to come in and watch a couple of games or watch a game go home for in a, in a couple of hours rather than a few days. So I still believe that there is a gap at some stage the challenge for rugby is around the global calendar there is so much rugby and it's not aligned at the moment whether yeah. that's club rugby international rugby and there's a huge debate going on throughout the game and obviously at world rugby level as to how they can not fix it but make it better to allow them competitions to run at the same time and you've seen it a little bit with the the, the July and November windows now becoming more of a league s- situation and make the fixtures more meaningful. Um. So the, the, the game, the administrators, the people running the game know that they have to keep moving. They know they have to continue adapting. They know that you know, there's been a, a lot of talk about the changes to the Six Nations. I'm very much against that. My fear is that they say South Africa come into the Six Nations that, um what does that do to the World Cup? I have a view that um, it's good to see Australian rugby coming back but when you look at France and the way that their game and the numbers that are playing the game and the quality of their rugby when you look at England the number of players playing the game when you look at South Africa you know they're, they're going to become the dominant forces in world rugby New Zealand will always be there because it's their national sport but they they have some challenges themselves and the level of competition being won so there's there's just Any number of challenges facing the game at the moment, from the concussion issue, the um, participation numbers at grassroots level, how do we grow the club game? Because if the club game dies, ultimately the game will die. Um, And there's those challenges all the way through the international rugby and the global calendar, but it's... um, the, the the game has always faced challenges and it's that ability to adapt has allowed to try and keep pace with other sports. Yeah,
0: and certainly the the coverage has changed and adapted a bit and it's tried they've tried to make it more accessible um with the, the I suppose pundits explaining what's happening yeah. um and and trying to make, make the whole game more accessible and that's great. But um, yeah, as you say, like, there has to be change, particularly the like, concussion issue and things like that um, at some point down the line. Um, I want to go back a wee bit, and I mentioned there about that, that documentary, um, the rivalry between you and O'Gara is fascinating and I think I have to ask you a bit about that. Particularly, it's funny, like I saw an interview with O'Gara I think you were on the interview as well, but he was sort of talking about how you obviously weren't giving up the jersey without a fight, right? So there's this... I think we all remember Ulster... It sort of divided the nation. You've got you've got, you've got you've got yourself from Ulster and then you've got Ogar coming up from from Munster. Divided the, the country. Who's better? Who's going to retain the jersey or is going <coughs> to take it off him? In what way has your perspective maybe changed? What was it like at the time... Whenever you saw this guy coming through, young pretender, and then how has that changed on reflection, maybe over the years?
1: I'm actually not sure it has changed. I, because I had played, and I, I've, I've tried to say this a little bit before, because I played through the amateur era, um, I played in an Irish team in the early 90, mid, mid to late 90s, which hadn't been successful. We knew there was a very good crop of young mm. players coming through, both in Munster and in Leinster, which was reflected in how they performed in the in the Heineken Cup over the years. But I was desperate to be part of a successful Irish team. Mm. I I wanted to be part of a successful Irish team to do to be part of that. That we knew we needed a more competitive squad. Mm. Of course, I wanted to play every week, and you know that was part of playing for Ulster and performing well for Ulster. You. You gave whoever the coach was whether it was Eddie whether it was Warren um a bit of a discussion you know and for me it was about um, ultimately getting to the point where Ireland were winning regularly I wanted to be part of it but I also knew that if I wasn't I wanted I, 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 I never wished that Lodge or Roland did badly I, I want because I knew as a number 10 if you want the team to be successful pretty much your, your team has to play well, you know, especially at international level, play well and kick well. So while I wanted to play, I generally, and, and Roger's the same, I think, you know, he probably, because of he had come through much more in the professional side of it, he was probably much more about time driven to get the jersey. Um, But I knew I was coming then in my career. I enjoyed every minute of it. And as I said, for me, the single biggest thing was being part of a successful national team.
0: Was it heated at times or was it always, in your mind, was it sort of like,
1: like, this
0: guy's coming through, he's the future, or were you, was it? Was there an element of O'Gara Sexton about it as well?
1: No, I don't think so. I think, like, Rog fell out with everybody. You know, <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's, he, when he played, but funnily enough, he and I never, never. Well, certainly from my side, he and I never fell out. You know, we probably in words at different times on the pitch and everything else, but that's because we are, we are both competitive. Yeah. But, you know, he and I have had a huge... Um, as a number 10, you spend so much time with the other number 10 because at the end of every session, you're kicking for an hour extra. On your days off, you're going kicking. So we spent a lot of time in each other's company. And my view always was that like, it's not about necessarily being really good mates, but it's about getting on and, yeah. and, and pushing each other. And... Um, Look, like I've, I've talked a lot about it. I, I enjoyed seeing Roman coming through and becoming and going on to achieve incredible success, both with Ireland and with Munster, and also in his individual capacity as with his yeah. Hennin Cups and Lance and um, you know he's he's had a fantastic career and there was never any doubt in my mind that he'd go on to have the the coaching success that he's had.
0: Yeah, and um, so it was on that point. I wanna talk talk to you a wee bit more about, about Ireland as well and and that um that chapter of your career. um. But in terms of, we take it right up the modern day, Ireland, we've got Sexton, the incumbent. he's so head and shoulders above mm-hmm. everyone. Who do you anticipate, if anyone, will be able to take the reins from Sexton?
1: See, I, I've got to the point where I'm worried about things like that. Yeah. I, I think inevitably somebody will come through. Over the years, we've had so many discussions around how can we replace John Hayes, how can we replace Paul, Paul O'Connell? How, that, that, that's part of the the media narrative about yeah. how can we ever... The Irish system is very, very good. The, Irish, the the pathway of bringing players through is very, very strong. I have no doubt that whenever Johnny decides to retire, um, that somebody will come through. And whether that's Carberry, whether it's one of the Burn boys, whoever, whoever it is, somebody will come through because Ireland need a number 10 and they will need a dominant number 10. There have been a number of people who have come through. Uh, you mentioned a few, Jack Cardy at Connell. So there, there are some very good players in the system. Until they're playing regularly for Ireland, mm-hmm. you can't say they will or they won't make it.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I know it's, it's uh, I love that. It's a refreshing perspective <laughs> to not have to worry about it. You just go like, we have an enormous amount of talent the chances are there'll be someone
1: somebody I promise you somebody will come through and I would also say like if before well, I think I said in an interview recently that um, when Andy Farrell took over from Joe I thought that might have been a good time to make a change at number 10 because Farrell was going to go in a slightly different direction and Johnny was so closely linked to how Joe Schmidt played but then I, I, I met him and a couple of hours with him in his, in his company and came away going, goodness, he's gonna keep playing, he's driven. You were know, almost so impressed by what he said, so impressed by the disappointment of missing out on the lions, but so impressed by that biggest his motivation for going forward. And when you see this performance over the last few weeks, honestly, he, he's the best number 10 playing in, in, in the UK and Ireland at the moment. You could argue possibly in Europe. Um, and yeah. his performance for Leinster have been incredible, and you know my view always has been: you get to my stage, you look back, play for as long as you can. When you're playing at the level he's playing, play for as long as you can. Forget about succession, forget about everything else. Somebody will come through, but Ireland's success, and Ireland's success is about now.
0: Yes, no, that's uh, absolutely, and he, he's, he's showing new signs of 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 uh, slowing down. Now, just to, co- to come again to that decision, you're talking about people not wanting to stop. Now, at a certain point, 2008, you decided that was time for you. Was That, that must have been a very difficult, uh, maybe not decision, because I remember you having to limp off the pitch yeah. in your last game, and you got a standing ovation, and, uh, and I think everyone was glad to see you go, but I think... Well, I'll not put words in your mouth, but it may have been the right time just because of, of of injury, you know. But tell me about that decision and about the transition out of playing the game.
1: So the the, 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 the actually the bigger decision Peter was in two thousand and six hmm. when um, at the end of the Six Nations two thousand uh, yeah at the end of two thousand and six Six Nations I retired from international rugby. Um, Ireland had asked me to go to the next World Cup, which was the one in France two thousand and seven. But I didn't want to for family reasons. Uh, I hadn't. I think I played, you know, literally single digit minutes in the Six Nations. So it got to that stage where, you know, yes, you were there as a as a as a backup, but you you weren't really making any meaningful compor- contribution to Ireland. So that's why I wanted to finish off with a couple of years at Ulster. And um, look, I I always knew that was when I was going to um, retire. For that two years, I'd spent a lot of time back in tunes because. I had done work experience a couple of days a week for, for that two-year period because I had anticipated going back into, into law and um, I'm, I'm being a solicitor in town. Um, so that allowed me being able to tr- play with Ulster and work at the same time, I was trying to make that transition because it is difficult for players who, who have only known one thing in a professional sporting um, environment to try and move into the real world. Um, and I tried to, to make that as easy as possible. So it wasn't it wasn't hard and as you said. My last year, um, I had I picked up an ankle injury in August uh, in a preseason game up at Cook, and never really managed to shake it. So I didn't play very much in the end. Um, I didn't play much after Christmas because of a very bad Achilles, yeah. and then got talked into playing one final game, which was Cardiff. And I'm glad I did get that final game, yeah. but I ruptured my Achilles after about like ten minutes, and it was a pretty, pretty uh, sort of an auspicious end to, to what had been a. I um, just had such a good time for that you know pretty much 10 years back in Ulster and loved every minute of it
0: yeah I mean it, was, it wasn't ideal in some ways as a way to end but in, in other ways it definitely was in front of the home crowd you oh. know and, and <laughs> I do I do remember that and uh, the, my
1: children got on the pitch and everything else yeah. and, you know they, they remember going out on the pitch so those are the, the memories you want to create and, uh, as I said I have no regrets but uh you know, it was a pretty, pretty frustrating year after trying rehab and Achilles. <laughs> yeah, I'm sure it was. And so after
0: that, so maybe he did he didn't step away from the game completely. He moved into this new role with Ulster, um, director of rugby or director of operations. It's director of operations. It's director it's right. of operations. So, but we went through a very successful uh, spell with you in that role. Uh, in particular, um, probably the root cause of some of that success was this combination of homegrown local talent combined with world-class talent we'd recruited um, in the the form of several uh, South African players and later John Afroa and the likes uh, joining us. Tell me about that role, what it involved and how on earth you managed to recruit
1: that well. Uh, well, The the role was really Michael Reid at the time I remember sitting down and chatting to him and he was saying we are at a stage where Ulster Rugby put it a different way Leinster and Munster have become two of the dominant teams in European rugby Ulster had fallen behind and become the third province in Ireland and you know Connaught were pushing hard in behind that and I think it was a very conscious decision made in Ulster rugby at that time and hold on we want to close that gap in the top two we want to get back to being competitive in um, in Europe and um, in the league we won the league in 06 you know we'd been up and down it was trying to build a uh, um a consistently competitive team and um, you know we sat down with Michael Reid and um, we made some changes then, but it, that first year it was really finding finding trying to define what the rule was and working with Matt Williams. and then Matt decided to leave um Ulster. and then there was the, the decision was okay, what's our next step? What, what are we going to do? And I was very much of the view and I still am that one of the, the, the big things about playing rugby in Ireland is, is the identity that comes with playing for your province, the one that you talked about growing up watching, the one that I grew up watching, that you, you want to play for your home province. And we felt that um, we had lost a little bit of that, which is why then we said, okay, we looked around at coaches. and went, um, I remember meeting Brian McLaughlin and saying, McLaughlin, this is what we want you to do. We want you to come back in and rebuild what has gone missing. Um, so that was one part of it. The other part of it was we knew we had a very good group of young players coming through. Mm-hmm. And then the final missing piece was, okay, we I, I feel we've got these two bits right. Where do we need to bring in some top players to address what at the time were pretty clear weaknesses in the, in the Ulster squad? And we were lucky that we were supported by RFU, mm-hmm. um, in terms of finance, how we because we needed a significant uplift in our budget at that time. Yeah. We weren't yet in the position because the new stadium hadn't been built, so we weren't yet in the position to go out and just recruit them. We needed that support, mm-hmm. we got it from the RFU. Um, and the, the, that vision that was shown by Michael Reid at that time, and then obviously built upon by Shane Logan when he came in, um, allowed us to go out and recruit Muller, Pinar, Athoa, Gerald Payne. You know, Stefan Thurblanche, Pedri Vandenberg, Nick Williams, players, all of whom when you say their names now, actually made a huge impact for however long they were here. And probably one of my greatest disappointments as you look back to that 2012 to 2014, and we probably didn't quite believe how good a team we mm-hmm. were, yeah. but Because you look back now, and we were a very, very good team. Yeah. And, um, you know, we, we came up slightly short in 2012. In the Champion, in the Highland Cup final in 2013, we were beaten by Leinster. We were very unfortunate because that coincided with the building of the new stadium. Um, and we weren't able to play the final at the Kingspan Stadium at Ravenhill because the stadium wasn't finished. So we had to go and play Leinster in Dublin. We lost the game we should have won. So if you look back at there were lots of factors in that period of time, but it was a wonderful time to be part of the Ulster management where we were, we were winning. We were, you know, I think we won the league in 2013 um, and 2014 again we lost the Saracens but it was more the, the 20 um was it 20 I'm trying to think which year was Jared Payne sent off
0: 2014 yeah
1: that, I think that's right. sure you,
0: yeah, yeah. Okay, well, maybe,
1: maybe 2013 2013 ah uh, yeah anyway so but, but again it was, it, was a, it was a really good time it was coincided mm. with the new stadium and built big crowds and I remember um the uh, uh, one of the things that really remember is the atmosphere for that Saracens home quarter final in Europe, which Gerald was sent off in. That was probably as good an atmosphere as I've ever experienced. And you talk to Mark McCall and some of the Saracens players, and they were shocked by how intimidating it was and how vocal the Ulster the Ulster support was then. And um, you know, at that stage, you know, before that game, and, and as a kickoff, you're just looking around, going, "This is what." All the hard work went into building this team, building this stadium, um. but unfortunately we just didn't get, yeah. get to win anything during that period.
0: Yeah, but still a, a really memorable period in Ulster's history. And oh, Again, sure. as we're talking about the 99 final lifting the country, I remember because I was doing my finals in uni and not being able to, yeah. <laughs> to actually attend uh, the crucial games, but um a, a hugely successful periods in retrospect respect we maybe could have done more but it was an unbelievable team that,
1: that it was, was an, an unbelievable same. team I mean, yeah look, you talk to lots of people now who say oh su- to define a successful season Ulster if you win something they don't mm. if you're if you're brutally honest and you sit back and look at what Ulster have in terms of budget and compare that mm. to teams throughout Europe they should not be winning anything you know mm. fo- football why are Man City Liverpool at the top of well, they pretty much spend the most on their on their playing squads? You look now at Ulster's playing squad, they they have a very, very good squad, but the depth that perhaps some of well certainly Leinster have, and then some of the French teams, that it's very, very difficult to compete. So I do believe that Ulster getting to the knockout stages in Europe is a is a successful season, but then it's about Probably in the URC now, and it's going to be more difficult with the South African teams. That's really mm-hmm. the route to uh, to winning a competition.
0: Yeah, and um, so whenever I said you were coming on the the podcast, a number of people asked this question, and you basically covered it there. So it's sort of an inevitable question for you because you are associated with that two very successful periods in Ulster's history. They ask, what do we need to what the Ulster need to do now? The, the current squad, current setup. What can we do to compete with the top teams in Europe? A couple of people have referenced specifically Leinster. We talked about the difference in resources that exist. Is there any way that Ulster can punch you above their weight? Is there any sort of strategy there that we're all missing?
1: <laughs> no, I, I have absolutely no doubt that, that, that Johnny Petrie, Bryn Cunningham, Dan McFarland are, are doing a fantastic job and they will have a strategy. But the reality is that the best probably... The best. Um, I would not even probably. I would argue very strongly. The best club side in the world is a couple of hours down the road, and um, you know when you look at what they've got in terms of their school system, and um, in terms of the the number of high quality schools very very close by, and the number of players coming through their system, nobody can can compete with them. Yeah. I there's no short term solution to that. You compare the number of people coming through their system. They're at a different level plus with the quality of coaching they had. So you ask how do you close the gap? Well that's about you know what Australia done, bring in very good coaches, build a very good coaching team. Um, and you, you need a year. My, my view is that when you when you play the very best teams that are just you know slightly better than, than you are and that, that's the nature of sport, you need a little bit of luck. You know you just need something to go in your favour and you can you can win something but it, it doesn't happen very often and the, the, there's no secret to why Leinster have, have, have dominated the URC for, 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 for a number of years but they, I, I, again they're going to have ups and downs and Ulster have just got to make sure that the next time Leinster don't perhaps play the way they've played for the last couple of seasons they're then in the position to, to step through and, and and be that team that wins but the good thing is Ulster have got some a, a very, particularly the backs yeah. a very very exciting um, crop of young backs coming through they just need to find some
0: yeah, absolutely. No, there's uh, there's an unbelievable crop of backs coming through. The, the other the other thing I was going to ask you about is about James and how how he's progressing through the academy. It's probably a daunting task for him, there'll inevitably be comparisons for him coming through. It's nice to see Nathan Doak coming through at roughly the same time, so it'll be a great partnership to know if they were able to play together at some stage. But how's <laughs> it's sort of a tricky question because you won't want to uh, <laughs> uh, pop him up too much. But how's, how's he getting on? How's oh, God, uh,
1: It's always hard as, a, as we talked about earlier. It's hard as a parent to make any sort of objective view and, and how, how how your your children are doing. But you know, it's funny you say that. Um, when he was at friends, uh, now my son son Malone was at ten, James was nine. Yeah. So that was I thought that was great. I nice <laughs> played with nine all the way through he went to England went to school in England first day they were there um, the, the, they didn't have a 10 so James went I'll play 10 and uh, you know he, he's very he loves the game we talked about it earlier he, he yeah. loves the game he understands the game he's been around the game and he's learned and you know from a, he's been kicking with some of the best best players around and, you know it's uh, how does he get on? I don't see him now day to day, so I can't give you an, can give you an answer to that. But he has loved being part of the Ulster Academy. He's loved the lifestyle. And it's a discipline that comes with training on a full-time basis. And um, the, the, the challenge for all young players coming through now, Peter, is making sure you get the number of games that you need to develop. It's a big, it's a huge challenge across not just rugby, but lots of, of sports that young players coming through now, yes, the quality of coaching is essential, yes, analysis is a huge part of it, but the game is the best teacher, the game is the best coach, playing the game, and especially as a number 10, understanding the ebb and flow of the game, which you can only get by being out there and being part of the discussions. How do we change the momentum of the game? How do we make sure that we get field position? Mm-hmm. How do we stop? So, those are conversations that, yes, you can have afterwards, but they're not the same as having them on the pitch when you're tired when you're carrying an injury, when the referee's making some dodgy decisions, you're on. So, there's lots of, um, and that, that's, that's really the big part for players who are coming through that system. Yeah. How do they get the, the quality and the amount of game time required? Yeah. to, to
0: fulfil the potential. It's funny, I think we've come full circle oh, as, as we sort of come to the close of the interview, you talked at the start about not particularly enjoying training because you enjoy playing more and equally, we're looking now at a system where, I suppose, we've seen various Ireland teams who've been to the gym loads and I remember it was ahead of a particularly disastrous World Cup Cup campaign. I think it was 2007. All the guys were massive, had been training a lot. Actually, getting on the pitch is what's key because that's where you make decisions under pressure, under fatigue. And these guys, including James and his and the academy guys playing for Ulster A or whatever, getting lots of games and getting high quality opposition to play against. That's um, really interesting. And a couple of things. Few, just very quick fire things, just to finish. Uh, people will, will, will be annoyed if it didn't sort of say their questions. So who's the best, Is a controversial, who's the best number nine
1: you've played with? <laughs> <laughs> um, I don't know who the best number nine I've played with the best number nine I've ever seen is Ruan yeah. You know, I'd love to play with Ruam because yeah. of the... the, the the, the qualities that he brought and the, his personality in the pitch—I'm just have uh, experienced that. But the guy is very fortunate. You, throughout your career, when you play for lots of teams, you play with so many different types of scrum half, and I suppose the ones that um you know I grew up with—I grew up with, again. You talk about Nathan and James. I, I grew up playing a lot with Doki with Neil Doug and um you know we as someone he was one of the best scrum halves around very unfortunate yeah. not to have an international cap but look I, I don't think it's ever a case that I could say this one particular scrum half because when you think back lots of your big games have been with different players the yeah. scrum half in and 1999 Andy Matchett was yeah. brilliant as a number 10 to play with Yeah, and at London Irish I played with Niall Hogan who was a Irish international captain and we played oh he just played with so many um, so many different types of players. It's the same as centre. I couldn't tell you who the best centre. Yeah. I, I played with, but I played with some unbelievably good ones.
0: Yeah, yeah, it's hard to narrow it down. So I'm trying to remember who asked that question, but that is the answer. Well, A <laughs> <story,
1: but>, uh, <laughs> very, <why> di- <laughs> very
0: diplomatic answer. There. Um. So Jim Jim Soft I assume that's not his actual second name. Jim Soft asked, does Humf have any plan to get back into a coaching role now, as far as I'm aware you went immediately upstairs yeah. do you like coaching or is that something you'd anticipate doing do
1: you know what all the way through my career as a player I said I'm never going to mm-hmm. coach even though as a number 10 a big part of your role in the pitch is always yeah. coaching people around the pitch That's, yeah. that, that especially you know, maybe less so now but certainly um, in the early stages of professionalism um, you know, I look back now, the one thing I maybe would like to have done would have done a little bit more coaching. Yeah. But I also believe that coaching is either in you or it's not <laughs> in you. You know, it, it's very hard to make. Mm-hmm. And that's why the natural coaches just have an ability and have a,
0: not necessarily
1: an aura around them, but they do have a, they, they certainly have something that Um, I would probably struggle to define. So for, from my point of view, I never had any ambition to coach. I was much more about I want to give the coaches every opportunity to do their job to the very best of their ability mm-hmm. and ensure that nothing off the pitch interfered with their ability to coach. That, that was yeah. my um and to give them the best players that I can give them, you know, manage the, the season the best way. So um do I miss it? Um uh, you miss what I would say is you miss the couple of hours before kickoff. Mm-hmm. And you miss the hour, or the couple of hours after kick off when you've won. <laughs> <laughs> you know, but I was driving away from from Kingspan Stadium after the Ulster to lose game, and you know that feeling that I hadn't had for two years. It was almost that sense of that disappointment, that understanding of because you know you go as a supporter, you go away and you're looking forward to the next week. When you're involved in the management side, you know the impact of losing that game mm-hmm. on your budget and yeah. your ability to recruit and. And just you know, and you also know that opportunities like that don't come along very often, which was a, a good route for Ulster to get to uh, to, to, to further down the knockout stages. So, um, but uh, listen, being involved in sport is um, an incredible privilege. But I had you know twenty five years involved in professional rugby, yeah. and um, I'm now enjoying the challenge and the frustration. And every other adjective that you could come up with are probably very closely linked to the sporting world. But, you know, I'm doing the challenge of trying to set up a business from from an idea that was somewhere in the dark recesses of my brain.
0: Yeah, and I think that the only thing I can finish on, there's a a comment on Facebook um, from a lady called Christine Waddell. And I think she speaks for for all of us. She says... (laughs) Please tell him he's my hero. I love him so much. Best number ten ever. Simply the best. So I think I think we all agree with that. And um, people listening, and certainly certainly I do. Uh, if it was a choice between you and Gara, yeah. I pick you. So David, thank you so much for your time. And that was fascinating chat. And I think people love listening to that. So thanks again. i thank you, Peter. Jordan.